Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. I'm Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director for BCLT. And today, Brian Matsui from Morrison Forrester will walk us through a few of the recent interesting rulings from the Federal Circuit. Brian, thanks for joining us again. Thanks a lot, Wayne. Well, Brian, the, the last two weeks have been, been light at the Federal Circuit on, on presidential decisions. Uh, but we did get two interesting cases. So I, I'd love to start with the Mobility Works case, which um, is another constitutional challenge to the PTAB structure, uh, as we maybe haven't had enough yet. We get a, another one uh, that's fairly unique. So you want to tell us about this one? Yeah. I mean, this is sort of like the ghost of Arthrex or, or something like that, since we're right around the time of Halloween right now. This is another IPR appeal, and the patent owner's claims were canceled. So again, since it's a constitutional challenge, we don't ever get to the merits of the actual IPR decision on what happened to the claims themselves. Uh, there were a couple constitutional issues here. Uh, the patent owner requested a remand under the Supreme Court's Arthrex decision, you know, which, of course, everybody knows found an appointment clause violation. But actually, rather than just remanding the case and being done with it, the Federal Circuit first addressed a couple other constitutional challenges that the patent owner made. And I think that's probably the reason why we have a presidential opinion here rather than just a, a straight remand. The Federal Circuit was able to sort of address these two issues and potentially you know, foreclose them or make them more difficult uh, for future litigants that want to raise them. So Brian, one of the issues that, that came up uh, early in this case, and that seems to be coming up uh, frequently, is the government forfeiture argument. You want to explain why the, the government keeps raising and losing this one? That's a good question. I mean, I think to take a step back, we should just look at why the government's involved in this case, because, you know, it's an IPR dispute. And of course, you know, the government can defend and does defend the final written decisions, but they're not usually in these IPR decisions. And whenever you raise a constitutional challenge to a federal law and appeal, you have to tell the Court of Appeals that you're, you're doing so, so the court can tell the Attorney General, and then the Department of Justice typically comes in and intervenes to defend the law, and, and that's what happened here. And what the government has been doing in these types of constitutional challenges to IPRs is they've been saying that you didn't raise the constitutional issue before the board, that you need to raise it before the agency, and because you didn't, you forfeited it. And that happened in the Arthrex decision. But the, the Federal Circuit really just sort of brushes that aside in, in all these cases. It, it basically just relies upon law saying that you don't actually need to raise these issues before an agency because the agency doesn't have the authority to say that a law is, is unconstitutional. And then the, sort of the caveat here is that the court also says that it's a legal issue that can be decided. And so it's not something that needs to be raised because it doesn't require any sort of fact finding um, in the case at all. Well, Brian, in, in this particular case, I mean, we saw the pain caused by not developing a record below. The first time the Federal Circuit saw this was in briefing and they, they make some pretty pointed statements about there's no evidence in the record. And it seemed to hold that against uh, the party, but at the same time, they say they don't need any evidence. Can you reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a hard, sort of a hard situation for the appellant, the patent owner to be in in this case. Obviously, they're the ones that didn't raise this 
before the board. But I think it's important just to sort of take a look at sort of from the 30,000 foot view of what was going on here. The patent owner basically raised two due process constitutional arguments, basically relying upon some old Supreme Court precedent saying that the structure of how IPRs are handled incentivizes the patent office and the APJs to institute reviews. And it's basically on the fee structure and the fact that the APJs can get performance bonuses, which the patent owner said really is keyed on the number of cases that they decided. So this is a, you know, a constitutional challenge that requires some sort of sort of evidence, some sort of like record that's in order to be before the court. And of course, as you know, that's not something that you're typically going to see in an IPR decision that comes from the board, which is just discussing, you know, 102 and 103 issues. So what they did, what the patent owner did is they basically filed a motion for judicial notice to try to get you know, some paper or some evidence before the Court of Appeals that could be looked at as to, to support its due process arguments. And, you know, despite the court saying that, well, there's no forfeiture because we're really dealing with issues that don't require fact findings, it then accepted this judicial notice evidence from the Federal Register that was really going to be the support uh, of the claim that the patent owner had. You know, to your point about sort of being at the same time that they basically put in this federal register evidence, but then were sort of chided by the court for not having any actual evidence to support their constitutional challenge. I think that that is a, a tough position that they are in. When the court rejected the idea that the APJs were basically instituting proceedings in order to get more fee structure for the patent office. The court actually said that there's no showing that the APJs institute AIA proceedings to earn sufficient decisional units to qualify for a bonus. Now, to me, that really seems like they're saying that the patent owner didn't have enough evidence to actually show that there was a due process violation. And that seems to be some tension there with that aspect of the holding and the forfeiture holding or no forfeiture holding saying that this is really a legal question that doesn't require fact finding. When I, and I read some of the little blurbs out there about the case, some of the, the legal reporters say, oh, well, the, the patent office can do effectively what it wants with regard to compensation. But I think this holding is a little bit narrower than that. Uh, do you agree? I do. I mean, the court really looks at it uh, in two ways. One, it basically says, well, the fees that basically go from IPRs that's helped fund the agency, that doesn't really mean that there's any sort of due process problem because ultimately it's Congress that's the one that's deciding how to basically fund the agency. So you don't have a due process problem there. And then on the other hand, it's saying, well, with the specific structure that you have here, as far as the APJ judges the, and, and the bonus system that they basically might get, it really just means that they have to have a certain number of decisions to sort of be in good standing. It's not dictating the way that they decide the, the cases in any way. Now, obviously, if the facts on the ground change, if the structure of the way the APJs are paid or are compensated or what they must do changes in a material way, then one could imagine that, that things could be a little different. With the, the number of parties out there that are so hostile to the, the PTAB, seems like we may see challenges based on any changes come up almost immediately. 
it'll be interesting, but uh, there seem to be no limits to the number of constitutional challenges for IPRs these days. No, I mean, people are definitely being very creative in the way that they're thinking of these challenges. I, I do think that this is going to be a tough one for a lot of patent owners to want to raise successfully, despite the fact that we just talked about some potential openings there. You do have now a federal circuit published opinion basically foreclosing it, at least as this specific structure. And in order to actually have more fact finding to sort of support the argument, it would be very difficult to get that evidence. And it would be very difficult to get that evidence before the board when you're actually trying to litigate whether or not your patent should be canceled. It, it's hard to imagine going into the very tribunal that you're appearing before in trying to raise these ev this evidence of you know potential bias based upon a fee and bonus structure. Well, Brian, let's move on to the the second case, and that was the uh, energy heating case. It's one of those rare cases that's completely about attorneys' fees. So you want to want to walk us through through this and what we take away from it? Yeah. So this is another sort of interesting case in the sense that it's a precedential decision, even though it's very narrow, as you mentioned, just only addressing attorney's fees and, and that being a rarity. Uh, this is a district court infringement action. It is actually returned to the federal circuit for a second time. And that's really the reason why all that's left is attorney's fees. Uh, the district court awarded attorney's fees, finding that this was an exceptional case against the patent plaintiff. I think the big takeaway here is that this is really a reiteration that there aren't any bright line rules as for whether or not a case is exceptional under Section 285 to warn attorney's fees, and that there's a lot of discretion for the district court to, to make that determination. Well, no, this case had a very unsympathetic patent holder that had gotten tagged for inequitable conduct. I guess the underlying question is, this the type of case that we can learn from if you don't have a really bad patent owner plaintiff? I do think that it highlights the discretion that the district court has. I mean, certainly, as you mentioned, uh, the patent owner here, their patents are unenforceable due to inequitable conduct. But the court was making clear that it's not like a bright line rule that just because the patents are unenforceable due to inequitable conduct that you then have an exceptional case for attorney's fees. There's nothing along those lines. And in fact, the court made very clear that the district court didn't say that there were attorney's fees awarded just because of the inequitable conduct determination. And the court made clear that it wasn't doing that either. What the court was really saying is there's a, there's a balance going on, and it's really within the district court's determination to decide what it wants to consider. Uh, for example, the patent owner said, well, there was really an absence of litigation misconduct on its part, and that that really should have weighed in its favor uh, in the determination as to whether or not to grant fees, and that the district court didn't consider that. And the federal circuit said, well, it's really within the district court's discretion to decide what it wants to consider. It's, it's not something that everything has to be weighed one way or the other. Well, Brian, I went back and I looked at the underlying inequitable conduct finding and the fee finding, and it looks like a, a real model for what a district court should do. So anybody that's looking at inequitable conduct issues, I encourage to go look at the district court opinions. They are very thorough and methodical in what they do. My impression after reading those was that if those are losers, 
then judges have no real guidepost on what they're going to need to do in the future. So last question on this case, appellate fees. What do we learn from the federal circuit on appellate fees? Well, the court also mentions appellate fees in, in its opinion, and it notes that the appellee had requested appellate fees in its response brief. And the court said, well, that's premature. You can't request appellate fees in your response brief. You have to request them after the final judgment on appeal or after the denial of rehearing on appeal. So I, I think that what the court's saying is that you're a little premature on your fees motion, but you can still make the request in a little while. That's the way I read it. I, I read it as, hey, you're early, just do cut and paste and, and send it back to us. We'd like a chance to make another point. Right. And to, to your point about this being you know, a good decision from the district court that won an appeal and that it was only an appeal on attorney's fees, it's one of those situations where even though appellate fees are very, very rare, you could see the court considering this more just given the narrow nature of the appeal and the fact that the patent owner persisted in bringing this appeal after all the paper that had already been spent. Brian, even though it was a light couple of weeks, we got two fun cases out of it and thank you for sharing. Thanks very much, Wayne.